Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through 18. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1827. (coughs) Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. These are the authoritative words of God. May they be a bright light to those living in darkness. During my nine years on the mission field, the most frequent discussion or debate among missionaries seemed to be over the topic of gospel contextualization. Contextualization means the act of placing something into a context. So basically, missionaries, they disagree with one another about how best to bring the gospel message into their context to the people that they are ministering to. For example, in most Asian countries, uh, they operate in what is known as an honor-shame culture. In contrast, we in the West function more in a guilt innocence frame of mind. So the question arises, how does one effectively preach the gospel so that the people understand? For example, we in the West typically talk about God's punishment for sin, for our societal laws have shaped the way we think. In Thailand, however, a better approach would be to be would be to talk about the dishonor that comes from breaking God's commands. For the Thai people are more concerned about how their actions will bring honor or shame to their families than they are about the punishment that will arise. So this uncertainty of how far do we contextualize the gospel comes to the forefront. Do we never talk about Christ's atonement? because it is a foreign concept and it could be offensive? Do we wait until a person becomes a Christian and then share that little tidbit? Or do we speak about it up front, not worrying about whether or not it is unpleasant to the ear? These are the dilemmas that missionaries have to deal with and decide upon. And they argue over these things for many reasons, one of which is that some missionaries do not want to bring any offensive topic 
to the people that they are witnessing to. They feel that those that do bring up these cultural taboos give Christianity a bad name, spoiling it for the other missionaries. Yet those who are not afraid to ruffle some feathers, they they feel that an incomplete gospel is no gospel at all. They claim that false converts have been created because the gospel wasn't fully being presented. So these two groups, they, they grumble and complain against each other. Yet the same thing happens in the U.S., does it not? There are certain subjects that are off limits because they grade against our cultural sensitivities. When the gospel hits on these topics, it is tempting to just avoid the subject altogether. So we argue over the nature of these things as well. How far do we contextualize the gospel in America? We can learn from the successes and failures of our first century friends from Philippi. For in many ways, they faced a similar dilemma. Though for them, it wasn't just about offending someone with the gospel message. Preaching Christ could cost them their freedom or even their life. After all, Paul was in chains for the gospel, and there was no reason to believe that these Christians in Philippi shouldn't be next. Yet such pressure was a tool that God was using to sanctify these Christians. He desired for them to be unified under his Son. He was completing the work that he began in them, making sure His word went forth boldly in order that more people could know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Many of the things that God commands us to do as Christians are difficult. Sometimes we get scared and fall short of such callings. And then there are those times where the mission isn't clear to everyone in the room. Such confusion causes disputes and disunity. A partnership with Paul could have meant greater hardship for the church in Philippi. It is the idea that one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. Paul was in prison after all. He was that bad apple. He was just a little too brash when it came to talking about Christ. He didn't take into consideration the cultural sensitivities of the people of his time. He didn't conceal his Christianity well enough. I mean, how are we to win friends and influence people with men like Paul around? Well, let's look at our text for today and see what Paul has to say about this. But first, some context. Now, if you recall from chapter 1, Paul was either going to be freed from his chains and come again to see the church in Philippi, or he was going to die a martyr's death. Whatever the case, he now encouraged these Philippian brothers and sisters to contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. He didn't want them to fear their opponents. But in order to do this, they needed to be united. And in order to have unity, they needed humility. 
through Christ's own demonstration of making himself nothing, God grants to the believer the same mind or attitude of considering others better than yourself. This sets up our passage for today. Look with me at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We begin with the word therefore. So all those things that I have been preaching on week after week, those come to bear on this passage. Christ denying himself of his divine nature, being obedient to death. The Philippians, their need for unity and humility so that they may stand as one man proclaiming the gospel to a world that opposes their message. Because of these things, Paul now instructs them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't this go against what we know about Paul's message? About his theology? Doesn't this contradict what he says in some of his other letters? Take, for instance, this in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are not saved by our works, but through faith. This is very clear from these passages. So why does Paul say now to the Philippian church to work out your salvation? There needs to be a distinction made. God's salvation can be looked at in different categories. The first being justification. This is a legal term meaning to be declared righteous. It is a transaction that occurs at the moment of salvation. Those God chooses, those who hear the message of truth, who by the grace of God are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who have true saving faith as Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. God imputes to them the righteousness of Jesus, declaring them to be innocent. The penalty of sin that they deserve was paid for at the cross. This is what Paul is talking about in our passages from Romans 4 and Ephesians 2. Yet for our passage today, Paul is not talking in the past tense, but in the continuous present. Continue to work out your salvation. This is what is known as sanctification. Which means that even though a Christian is justified, 
They are continuously being made into Christ's likeness until they die or until Jesus returns. This thought of working out your salvation, it should give you pause as Christians. You always hear that God is the one who saves, but from Paul's words here in verse 12, you can see that you are to work. Not only that, but you are to work with fear and trembling. Now, earlier in his letter, Paul charged the church to not be frightened in any way by those who oppose them. Yet now he tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. This harkens us back to Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus said this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Philippians faced bodily danger from those who opposed the message of Christ. Paul told them to not be frightened. Yet now they were to fear God as they work out their salvation. You see, to the believer, sanctification feels like hard work. And there is truth in this. Because you do not become more godly without sweat and tears. So when you see progress in your life, you might think to yourself, boy, I'm doing a bang-up job here. This is where the danger lies. For pride can creep in unnoticed. And if you're not careful, you can grow arrogant. This is what Paul is warning about here as he leads into verse 13. Paul doesn't want these Philippian believers to be comfortable in their own achievements lest they become conceited. Let's look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Couple things to notice here. First, the Christian must realize that their sanctification isn't a process that they are in control of. It may seem like effort on their part, but from God's view, He is the one doing the work. This is why they should fear and tremble, for conceit and arrogance can creep in if someone thinks that they are maturing on their own strength. Just as there is no boasting in justification, there is also no bragging when it comes to sanctification. So while as a Christian you must work, it is God who works in you. This is the very thing we read about at the beginning of Paul's letter in Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Paul said this, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Paul easily transitions from the work these believers are doing, their partnership in the gospel, into God's working in them. This is the tension we feel when we read verses 12 and 13 together. Let's look and try to get a sense of this dynamic. Therefore, my dear brothers, have you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Paul is not saying here that your good works are part you and part God. What he is communicating is that your actions are a result of God's acting within you. Good works in God, God works in you to subdue your sinful nature. He does this through his Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, you would never be free from your sinful nature. And Paul says that God works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. This is similar to the famous passage in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed. This is a passive verb. In other words, God is the one working within you, changing the way you think, allowing you to both know and agree with his will. Once you have the will of God, then you can act upon these things. You can offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It is as if you have become that dutiful child that wants to please his father. And what are the duties that Paul gives to these Philippians? Verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. We've now come to the heart of our text for today. This is the main point that Paul is trying to communicate in this section of Scripture. So if you've been asleep, now's the time to wake up. You awake? All right. Paul brings these Philippians, he brings them back to humility and unity by giving them practical steps to follow. Do not complain. Do not argue. Now we have a tendency as Americans to take a text like this and and we like to stuff it right into our own categories. And we ignore all the surrounding verses and the historical context about the church in Philippi and we, we mold it into what we want. Children, Do your chores without grumbling. Do your homework without complaining. 
Don't argue with your brother and sister. Adults, don't complain when your boss seems a bit unfair. Don't get into disputes with your spouse over silly little matters. Don't gripe when you're creeping along in standstill traffic. While this all may be valid advice, it misses the main point of what Paul is trying to communicate. Let's look at this greater context. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. The greater context is their partnership in the gospel. They were to be God's light to a darkened world. Remember, these Christians were under severe persecution. They needed to stand strong as one man for the faith of the gospel. And they needed to be unified in order to do so. And to be unified, they needed to have a mind of humility, which is theirs in Christ. Who, by the way, sets the gold standard for humbleness. If they were to consider others as more valuable than themselves, then they needed God's sanctifying work in their lives. They needed to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, Paul brings them back to the charge he had in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, when he tells them to behave as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They were to serve their king without complaint, without argument. Now the Greek word for everything in verse 14 is panta, and it means all or the whole. Do it all without complaining or arguing. What Paul is saying here is this. In all these things I have been talking about, do them without complaining and arguing. Act in humility without complaint. Be unified as a church without, without argument. Do not grumble when persecution comes your way. Do not quarrel about being bold witnesses for Christ. For this is God working in you and through you. But to what end? so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. As stars, Christians are to emit God's light into a darkened world. This is what Jesus meant in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. God's sanctifying work is not just for you. For you are God's beacon to the lost ships at sea as you hold out the word of life, that saving message of Christ, others 
will see the sanctifying work that God has done within you and praise your Father in heaven. This was Paul's charge to the brothers and sisters in Philippi. Stop complaining. Stop arguing so that you can be lights to this darkened world. Now we can't be certain, but there are hints in this letter that not everyone in Philippi was in agreement when it came to preaching the gospel. Maybe some thought that a bold witness was not the best approach. After all, Paul was in prison facing death because of the message he preached. And who wants that? There may have even been dispute on whether or not to help the apostle in his time of need. I mean, what would happen to them if Rome found out that they were aiding this troublemaker? Perhaps others thought that a bold witness would put Paul into further danger. In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul even seemed to indicate that this was a possibility. This is what he said. The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. If the church that Paul planted grew as zealous as he, maybe Caesar would sentence Paul to death, setting an example of what happens to those who have grown a little bit too loud concerning this Jesus. Yet Paul wants them to put all these disputes aside and be unified, holding out the word of life. His own well-being should not be a factor in the gospel being proclaimed. Verse 17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul knows that martyrdom is a possibility. Yet he is willing to be expendable for the cause of Christ. For to him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul now desires that these believers would take this same attitude and stand together as one man, being bold in their proclamation of Christ crucified for the sins of the world. Without complaining, without arguing. This would bring the apostle great joy. And so they too should rejoice with him. Dear friends, this is God's charge for you as well. Be bold in your witness of Jesus. Do not grumble when you suffer for it. Do not quarrel when tribulation comes to your door. The truth of the gospel message, it doesn't change. And it does not bow the knee to cultural norms. Speak loudly of Jesus. This wasn't just Paul's view on the matter. For Christ took this same attitude as he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He knew that he would suffer at the hands of men. Yet his love for sinners was greater than his love for himself. His adversaries accused him, yet he did not argue. They spit on him and mocked him, 
but he did not complain. They whipped him, tearing into his flesh, yet he did not grumble. They nailed him to a tree, but he did not protest. Jesus dutifully obeyed his Father in all these things without complaint, without argument. And he did all of this for you. He took your sins upon himself and paid the penalty that you deserve so that you can be seen as righteous. He took up your shame and now gives to you the honor that comes from being a child of God. So now, do all this without complaining or arguing as you hold out the world, the word of life to a dying world. Let us pray. Father, you have given to us a message that is not easy to preach, particularly if we don't like trouble coming our way. Yet you have called us to be bold witnesses for you. We ask now that you would sanctify us by the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in us to will and to act according to your good purpose. Set our focus upon your Son who died for our sins. Make us to shine like stars in the universe in a crooked and a depraved generation. Help us to repent of our complaining and arguing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.